Hello, hello. So, as I've probably referenced in the past, growing up, I was like, a, even as kind of a little kid, I was a comedy nerd. So much so that I think comedy spoke to me before almost any other form of culture. The notion of a comedian, a person whose job it was to make you laugh, it was just, it blew my mind. Uh, and so I tended to be the kind of little kid who was way more interested in which comedians were going to be on Ed Sullivan than, let's say, whether the Beatles were on. <laughs> I realize that's kind of sad. Uh, and for that reason, um, I actually was able to watch, you know, kind of the entire career of George Carlin. I am old enough and nerdy enough to remember him with his crew cut and his suit and sometimes a kind of pair of Goldwater glasses being you know, a pretty conventional com comedian. Of course, that changed. It changed several times, as we are going to say here on the show today. Um, to me, having watched the four-hour, part, partly directed by Judd Apatow, uh, bi biography, documentary uh, of George Carlin, I, I find myself thinking of what Mark Twain said about Wagner. You know, famously, he said, Wagner's music is better than it sounds. And it's possible that Carlin's comedy is better than it sounds, too, or some version of that. However, our panel will have much to say about that. And then in the second segment, Brigsby Bear, the 2017 feature film by Kyle Mooney, who after not exactly setting the Saturday Night Live world or stage on fire, is leaving the show, but maybe to do more interesting, quirky little movies. Uh, so with us today, well, we have two regular panelists who are stand-up comedians, and then we also have the uh, annually rated the funniest professor of media studies in America. So uh, mm -hmm. with us, uh, Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian, writer, and the host of the Nobody Asked Sean podcast. Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, choreographer of Kinetic Dance. Uh, Bill Usman is professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. So we are totally ready to go at questions of comedy and what forms and shapes that it takes uh, before we even plunge all the way into George Carlin's American Dream, which, by the way, is actually only – it's a mere 225 minutes long. It's not quite a four – I don't think that's a full four hours anyway. I'm bad at math. Uh, but let's uh, hear a little clip here. You're going to hear George Carlin. Uh, and uh, this is from part two of the two-part documentary. Uh, you're going to hear George Carlin, followed by the comedian Bill Burr. Uh, Cat A1, here we go. Hey, I'm the first one to say it's a great country, but it's a strange culture. <laughs> this is a country where gun store owners are given a list of stolen credit cards, but not a list of criminals and maniacs. <laughs> and now they're thinking about banning toy guns, and they're going to keep the f***ing real ones! I would say it was like a Miles Davis thing. George has like one, two, three, four, five distinct periods of growth where he would leave a segment of his audience behind. Like he, when he was like working clean from a team, to then becoming the counterculture guy, to then being that guy in the 80s, then that dude in the 90s. And each time, it was like a boa constrictor. It just got more pointed and more like, man, this guy's scaring the out of me. Where is this country going? Um, the courage that that takes to do that. All right, so uh, let's hear from the panel here. Um, maybe just begin with some kind of combination uh, comment on how you've always felt about George Carlin and how you felt about this documentary. Sean, why don't you get us going? 
uh, I've always thought Carlin was just one of the greats, you know. Um, but he he has that thing where he's like everyone on both sides thinks he's on their side, and that's what's interesting about him most to me is that everyone sort of thinks that like like oh Carlin wouldn't have been standing for this, and then the other side's like no Carlin definitely would have been standing for this, and I think it's an interesting thing where he's sort of like very political, but he's also like centrist. And I think that's sort of always led to interesting debates about him. I think he's one of the greats of all time. Like I think he's probably number three at the lowest for me, but it's interesting to see like how someone who is so pointed is also up for so much interpretation. Yes. I think that's a great point. Sean, do you think he's centrist or is he kind of both extremes? I mean, there's a way in which, you know, some of his rhetoric is very, very attractive to the left. But as you suggest, some of his rhetoric is attractive to the right as a way of staking out, I would not say centrist positions, but extreme right positions, which, I mean, some of the stuff he says just kind of fits into that shoe too, right? I guess you're right. Um, I guess he's not centrist, but I guess what I mean is that, like, because he's so far left and so far right, he almost ends up in the middle. Not that he's actually centrist in terms of his opinions, but, like, he's almost, like, non... Uh, you can't really classify him as either side. You know, he, he, he would say that himself. Like, he doesn't believe in, like, that he's uh, fits either ideology. He's, like, skeptical of both sides, but, like, sort of plants both sides almost puts you in the middle. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. How, what did you think overall of the, the documentary, which I'm being told is three hours and 45 minutes? Uh, it's a little long. Uh, <laughs> like, in, in, as a as a fan of Carla, there's, there's a lot of that I've, you know, sort of already known. Like, I, it wasn't too much, too many revelations, uh, but it, it was fascinating to, like, sort of in, like, painstaking almost uh, length uh, chart, like, his growth. I think that's the most fascinating thing about him is that like, like uh, I think Patton Oswalt says, not that he transformed, it's that he almost de-transformed, like he started to, to relax and become his actual self. I, I love that documentary. I, um, we were talking in pre-production about like there was not actually a ton of archival footage. So there was a lot of like, like trying to get around that, which kind of proved that they didn't necessarily need to have it be four hours. But I mean, it's Apatow. What are you going to do? This is 40 was like three hours. <laughs> yes, uh, that's true. And the Gary Shandling show was four hours and 30 minutes. Uh, Gary Shandling documentary, uh, which, by the way, I, I liked better than I like this. But uh, so I, I clearly am not as troubled by, although I thought at the same time, even with the Shandling thing, I thought Apatow needs to sort of master the idea of editing something anyway. Um, so, um, Carolyn, how, how about you? Uh, just same thing, relationship with Carlin, relationship with this documentary? So, you know, in watching this documentary, I found myself thinking about how I think the first time I ever saw George Carlin was on Shining Time Station on PBS <laughs> when I was a little kid. Right. Um, so, like, my introduction to him was in such a weird, really, like, non-George Carlin way. Um, and, you know, then obviously like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So it's like, I kind of saw him in these actor roles, uh, that were sort of this like later in his career time. Uh, obviously later I kind of went back in and I had seen, you know, tapes and, and heard his stand up and everything. Uh, so this was kind of interesting to me because, uh, I, I think like it, sort of gave me this history of George Carlin that I, I didn't have. Like I knew, I knew how important I, I think his work is to stand up comedy and like the history of it and where it is now. Um, but I found this fascinating to, to watch that journey, although it was really long. 
Uh, and for me to sit through something that's nearly four hours long, like that's, that's a lot. Um, but I, the other thing that kind of uh, fascinated me with this was sort of the era in which he was like working. I, I, I mean, it was a very tumultuous time to go through, you know, you, you, you had uh, civil rights movement and Vietnam, and it made me kind of think about now. I feel like we're in another tumultuous, historically tumultuous time. And uh, I was trying to think of comedians that are responding to it in the way that I saw it really pivoted his career from what I saw in the documentary of him in his earlier comedy versus where he landed uh, around then. So I was I was interested. I watched all four hours. So again, that's a win. <laughs> you know, actually, I think it comes out in the documentary that George Carlin actually got Thomas the Tank Engine hooked on cocaine, which uh, I knew <laughs> because I was in rehab with Thomas, but uh, I didn't think that was sort of publicly. I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, the whole show makes a lot more sense when you yeah. realize all the drugs that were being done. Um, yeah. Also, you know, the fights break out in bars now, whether is it, you know, Carlin, Ringo Starr, Carlin, Ringo Starr, who was the best conductor? Uh, all right. So, Bill, I, you know, maybe we could build a little bit on Carolyn's point, because to me, the thing that I, I found most intriguing or one of the two things I found most intriguing about this documentary was the kind of sweep of time, even though I remember Carlin with a crew cut, just watching it, watching the Reagan revolution transform him, watching, you know, all of these new events kind of affect him. Sometimes he, he's out ahead of them. Sometimes he's reacting to them. So uh, as a very funny media studies professor, that's got to interest you because that's part of what media studies kind of is. Sure. I, I mean, I do want to stake a claim as one of the professional comedians on this panel because I know that I am because my students often write on my evaluations. This class was a joke. Yeah. And so, you know, to me, that's a, that's a real win and I'm getting paid for comedy. Uh, but you're right that. It is one of the most interesting parts of the documentary even though you know he only lived to you know to be 70 or 71 he his his career did encompass you know that whole era from um post-world war ii uh you know the mid-century 1950s up until you know his his passing in 2008 and as we've already sort of alluded to, he himself went through many transformations during that time. You heard uh, Bill Burr compare him to Miles Davis and all of his different musical incarnations. I, I think that's that's right on. You could also think about people like, you know, dare I say, Picasso, who went through all of these different periods. And you see this in Carlin, too. And for me, I'm just a, a few years younger than you, Colin. He he was a impactful, uh, terrible, terrible, terrible word. Uh, he was an important person uh, in my cultural life. As a matter of fact, I used to do a radio show on WWUH in Hartford. And as a brash young man, I decided I was going to play his bit on the seven dirty words uh, during an afternoon show at like one o'clock on a Thursday afternoon. And I was kicked off the air and suspended for that. Um, so, you know, there, there, there is something that he touched in me and in a lot of people in terms of that irreverence and in terms of that 
sort of challenging of social norms. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I kind of want to talk about what the panel wants to talk about. So I don't want to be over directing this conversation. But, Sean, you know, inevitably, particularly at nearly four hours long, uh, something like this is going to get also into the kind of the nature of the person's personality uh, and, you know, what might be described as the personal cost it's either a personal cost of, perfu- of pursuing a life in comedy or the fact that a person who had the predilection to pursue such a life is going to therefore kind of accrue certain costs. We see his daughter, who strikes me as maybe a little bit damaged by this whole process. We learn things about his marriage, his time on the road, seem to pivot his first wife towards alcoholism. She eventually dies of liver cancer. He goes on the road, bizarrely, while she's, while she's dying. I don't know why I'm laughing at that. But um, there's sort of a, you know, the Carlin, the person, I don't know, he's still a little bit elusive in all of these four hours, but you do get the feeling that it's he's not just angry on stage. He's He's struggling with life in some way. I, I, Sean, I guess Absolutely. that, was, that I mean, wasn't really a question, but but I know you'll have something to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it all comes from somewhere. You know, you can't just sort of generate that. Uh, like Bill Burr is actually a, a great example of like someone who uh, he talks about, like, you know, the persona of Bill Burr for so long was like as an angry guy. And then he realized like, oh, I'm actually an angry person. He's talking about he's got to go through <laughs> therapy in his life and like he's not as angry now. And now he has to like, he's, his, his comedy is evolving in weird ways because he's like, I'm not, people want me to be that same guy now and I'm, I'm going through therapy and uh, it's like, I kind of have to force it now and I don't want to force it. And I think that's sort of what like with Carlin, like that sort of persona, like that sort of like, um, uh, he said uh, he's not angry. He's con- uh, he has contempt. And mm-hmm. I think that contempt is, is genuine. And I think it, it would it had to come from someplace. Um, and, and he and other comics talk about like, he had arrived at that point where like, his persona on stage was almost inseparable from his persona off stage. So uh, it, it, it doesn't shock, like uh, come as a surprise to me that uh, it affected his personal life. Cause how could it not? Like, I, I think like if you were like someone like, like his wife or something, like it would, it would suck to have just a, try to have a casual conversation about, Hey, like what's going on with the president? And he would just launch into a tyrant. Like, it would, like, it would, like enough, dude, we're like, we're just having a beer. <laughs> so, yeah, I just I'm so glad that you said what you just said, too, because this is kind of a lifetime fascination of mine. And I've discovered that when you're talking to creative people of, in almost any discipline, a great conversation stopper is something along the the lines of what you just said. Uh, and I particularly one thing that I've asked a whole bunch of different kinds of people, including Kurt Vonnegut, who came up in our pre-show preparations, is what would happen if creative people took Prozac or something? Or what if, you know, what if there was something that they could do that would suppress some of their demons? Is that something that creative people are afraid to do because they just feel like the whole mechanism feeds off whatever it is that you maybe seek treatment for? And Sean, it, it <laughs> you, you hit it perfectly. The, the question is like, what would a happy and well George Carlin be like? Would we even want to see that? Exactly. And I I don't think like him going to therapy would ruin his comedy, but it would have to evolve. You know what I mean? Like, I think as long as the same mind is behind it, I think it could it could result in something amazing because he's he has an amazing mind. It's not just like the contempt that makes him good, but the contempt takes it to another level. So you'd have to find that extra thing, the new thing that would take it to another level. You know what I mean? Yeah, Um, totally. So so it's it's, you know, uh, but it is it is a weird thing. Like people I know comics, I know artists that would like like I'm not going to therapy like it would it would mess up everything I do. And it's like, 
that's kind of like sad. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, so just let's uh, Kat, let's go to A3 just because we're, we're kind of talking around something that that Carlin specifically addresses through narration and an excerpt from stand up in the special. So here's A3. People will say to me sometimes, well, what are you so angry about? Has everybody lost their f-ing mind in this country? What they think is anger is a real contempt for the choices that my fellow humans have made. I just feel betrayed by the bull in America that's all around us. I call it the freak show. When you're born into this world, you're given a ticket to the freak show. When you're born in America, you're given a front row seat. (laughs) So, so Carolyn, in a way, I'm surprised that you didn't chafe uh, at the length of the documentary or at the subject matter. I mean, you and Carolyn strike me as different people. I mean, particularly in that level of kind of misanthropy that we, we hear from him. I mean, his 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 take is so dark and so dire, uh, and it just gets darker and more dire as the years pass. Did that start to bother you at all? No, honestly, I felt like I understood it more from him. Uh, you know, and and I think, like, we're not all that different. I think, like, a lot of things that I use in my comedy and one of the reasons I think that I got into comedy was because I had I had all these things that just like pissed me off all the time. And uh, I mean, I think that we all take our struggles like comedians all take your our struggles and how we see the world and frustrations and quirks and all these things uh, and, and build with it. So you know, yes, Carlin did get very dark with it, but I, I kind of, I, I, I sort of felt like the comedy that I knew his like later stuff sort of, I understood more in watching this kind of understanding that build. And I, I mean, I guess there is an element where you question like how healthy is this to like have this be your art for art form. But in a lot of senses, I get the, I get the feeling that for a comedian like George Carlin, like this was his, this was cathartic to him to to be out there raging and to have that level of rage. And honestly, Sean, like I would love to have a beer with Carlin where he just like goes off and just <laughs> goes on a rant. Like I, I think that there there is a magic in people who can just who can do that. And I mean, it, it's maybe an unhealthy level of rage and uh, and and use of that kind of uh, desire for change and frustration. But at the same time, I think that that's kind of what's at the root of a lot of a lot of great art and artists. Yeah, I know. I can imagine you and Carlin having a beer at the spigot. Uh, no, let's not start that again. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> let me get those people upset all over again. So, you know, um, Bill, I'm going to get have you start this a little bit, I think, and, and then we'll sort of roll into the two comedians uh, with it. To me, one of the big questions with Carlin, and, and, and maybe more so with Carlin than any other comedian except possibly Lenny Bruce, is the question is to, question of to what degree are you as a comic, as a comedian, expected to required uh, to be funny are you how to what degree are you judged 
ultimately on whether or not you're funny because there just seem to be moments in Carlin's career where the other thing, however we're going to describe the other thing, Mm -hmm. social commentary, uh, a philosophical pursuit of certain kinds of justice or just a a Vonnegut-sized sense of contempt for humankind are starting to get in in the way of and maybe even occupy a higher priority than comedy. Yeah, I have to say with Carlin, there were times when I did find him very funny, but there are also times where it's more just kind of um, woeful snickering, if 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 that makes sense. I mean, in terms of our reaction um, to to the things he's saying, that we're sort of like we're snickering, we're nodding our head, and it is cultural commentary. I have a huge appetite for that. Um, sure, I want my comedians to be comic. I want you know them to 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 make me laugh, but I also do like them to make me think. And I I know that that works against the grain for for some people's perceptions about this, but I think they can go hand in hand very very well. There is a risk of that. You know, I I had like this this Twitter argument with with somebody or or something about Lenny Bruce and how funny you you mentioned Lenny Bruce how funny Lenny Bruce was and I thought at times Lenny Bruce was was really really funny and then Lenny Bruce also had his um, addiction problems and and his bitterness and that starts to erode the funniness and but it also at the same time I think makes the cultural critique more sharp and more biting. I personally do embrace that. I'm okay with that. I I don't see that as as a terrible, horrible flaw. Yeah, you know, and Sean, so one thing that I brought up in our email correspondences uh, over the last couple of days, you know, Apatow now has made two of these kinds of documentaries. The other one, as I said, Gary Shandling. We know from Apatow's own history that as a teenager, I mean, he wanted to join this community. He wanted to be part of this club. Uh, and, and he is in his own way, although I don't think you know anybody thinks of him as a stand-up comedian, but he's certainly part of the comedy ecosystem in a very big way now. But I sort of wonder, like I sent you guys this thing from a Slater article with some of the more transgressive and, and particularly kind of misogynistic stuff uh, that Carlin did at times, which isn't there in the documentary. I mean, I feel like, you know, in a way, Carlin is famous for his sharp edges. And I think Apatow couldn't quite resist sanding down some of those sharp edges. But Sean, I'd love to know how you took that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's 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 one of the reasons why it's sometimes a bad idea for someone who is, like, enamored with the subject. I mean, oftentimes it's a bad idea for some, the person who's enamored with the subject to be the person to create the documentary for them because they're going to see them through those rose-colored glasses. I mean, yeah, Carlin, like, I mean, he, he's, yeah, famously sort of, like, he's a prickly guy, you know what I mean? And, and there are a, a number of bits, like in that Slate article, that sort of, like, are not as easy to um, hail as like brilliant and uh, standing the test of time because they sort of work against what certain clips in the in the documentary sort of points to as like what makes him great in progressive or, or whatever like uh, the the joke I think it was it they're just words or whatever and yeah. about you know the the n word and it's like 
a lot of smart people, especially acolytes of Carlin, do that thing where you're like, I recognize that this word, uh, you know, this word is only uh, has context, and that's why it's powerful. I exist outside that context. I'm going to use it anyway, but you should let me do it because I'm a comedian and I'm going to make this like, well, you just did the thing you're not supposed to do, but we're supposed to accept it. Like Louis has a very similar bit to that. Uh, and it's like, I get what you're trying to do, but also you can you not see why we're not okay with it? And also, <laughs> but sometimes they, I, I think Carlin genuinely in, in, at some point, especially like the late, late Carlin, did not care what you thought about what he was saying. Yeah, I think you're right. And there's sort of a way in which, you know, there's, you know, ultimately there's this weird kind of algorithm that says if you can make it funny enough, you can do almost anything. You know, if you can really make it funny, redeem it by being funny. But it seems to me that when he loses interest in that algorithm, um, it's – on the one hand, kind of interesting to see somebody throw that away and just go, uh, but also some somewhat less charming as well. So, Carolyn, we're just about out of time here, but, you know, we're in the middle of yet another national conversation about what con- comedians can say and what they can't. Uh, Chappelle is in trouble for transphobic stuff. Uh, now Ricky Gervais is in trouble for transphobic stuff. John Mulaney is in trouble for letting uh, Chappelle come on stage <laughs> with him and do transphobic stuff. Um, but, you know, Carolyn, it feels like we're always having some version of that conversation. What's okay? What's not okay? Can you make a joke about this? Can you make a joke about that? And of course, if you're like Anthony Jeselnik, the answer is yes, you can literally make a joke about anything, including something that is really, really not funny. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering how you see Carlin in the context of all that. Well, you know, I, I think that that's a complicated, I think that's a complicated one because I, I think that Carlin kind of, uh, I, it, I think he was one of the first comics to kind of poke the bear in that sense. Like he, I think he set out to really, you know, try, I mean, he, he got busted for using uh, foul language on stage and they arrested him for like, you know, that the, that using language like that was getting the crowd riotous, but they, you know, were laughing. And I, felt like to me that at least in this documentary, it was this interesting turning point for him where it was like, oh, so this really provokes everyone. Let's see how much further I can push this. So, and, you know, he talked about being the class clown. That's such like the, you know, like the 10 year old class clown in like fifth grade who like realizes like, oh, I'm not only going to get a laugh, but I'm going to like get the teacher all riled up. And that's part of the joy of that. And so to me, it was like Carlin was like part of his part of his joy in comedy was like getting people mad at him for doing things that maybe he shouldn't be doing, or maybe he shouldn't be saying. And, uh, so that was, that was kind of like an interesting thing for me to think about, because I do think like right now we're in this like cancel culture and, you know, comedians are just constantly struggling, like what they can and can't say. And, uh, you know, it, it does, it can feel almost like paralyzing. You're like, oh God, if I take, if I say this, am I going to just get like blacklisted? Uh, because everyone is so overreactive. And it was interesting to see Carlin just not care. And that was like, I really think part of what he set out to do was really to just kind of push those buttons. Um, and I think we need people like that. We need those like instigators out there. Uh, but it, not, not when it's hurtful. I, I think that there is, I think we're seeing some stuff with 
you know, like Dave Chappelle and things like that, where they're the intent feels different. Yeah. So, yeah. We probably have to stop there, although I'd love to continue this conversation. Uh, but yeah, uh, it is a, a nearly four hour uh, documentary. Uh, it is uh, all about George Carlin. Uh, I'm looking to make sure I'm getting the title of it right. George Carlin's American Dream is a two part documentary uh, on HBO. Or, um, I assume it's also on HBO Max. They still haven't figured out how to make their video player work, which is kind of weird. But uh, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. We'll talk about probably kind of a kinder, gentler bit of comedy called Brigsby Bear. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. We are back. Uh, We are talking about comedy in various forms today on the news uh, with uh, a terrific panel consisting of of Bill Usman, uh, an acclaimed comic uh, professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University, Sean Murray, a stand-up comedian, writer, and the host of the Nobody Asked Sean podcast. Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance, as well as other things, too. So um, we're going to segue from there to uh, Kyle Mooney. Uh, Kyle Mooney is leaving SNL, as is Kate McKinnon and Pete Davidson and A.D. Bryant. Um, Mooney is the least acclaimed by far of that quartet, uh, although he's always been intriguing to me. I saw some of the work that he did even before he started up with Saturday Night Live. Uh, but I also, in 2017, uh, or shortly thereafter, saw this comedy drama uh, written by Mooney and Kevin Costello. It's, uh, it's from a story by Mooney, uh, and it stars him 
Uh, it's called Brigsby Bear. Uh, it is the story of a young man. It's certainly a descendant from the tree of being there uh, and the Truman Show and Blast from the Past, which is probably the, not quite equal to some of those other movies. But it's a nice Brendan Fraser and Alicia Silverstone vehicle. But these stories of people, young people raised in a, usually a young man raised in isolation and then trying to cope uh, with the world that exists outside the strange uh, bubble that he's in. This is kind of the reverse of the Truman Show, which is all about a young man who, unawares, has let his entire life being in a TV show that other people knew about, but he didn't. This is about a young man raised in kind of a bunker situation where uh, his daily diet pretty much was um, a TV show called Brigsby Bear, which he was under the impression that the rest of the world was watching when, in fact, nobody ever saw it except him. Uh, It was made for him by his goofy parents, played by Mark Hamill, of all people, uh, and Jane Addams, who is always terrific but is barely in this movie. Uh, Before we get the panel going on it, we'll play a little uh, uh, clip. This is so uh, our our protagonist, James, played by Kyle Mooney, uh, is finally is at the beginning of the movie kind of freed from this bunker that he didn't even really know he was being held in. Uh, He uh, winds up uh, being seen by a psychiatrist named Emily, played by Claire Danes. You hear the two of them, plus his actual biological father, played by Matt Walsh. So terrific as the press secretary in Veep. Uh, So B1, here we go. James, the way that the police found you was someone spotted Ted going into a warehouse about 40 miles outside of where he was holding you captive. And inside that warehouse, they found a television stage of a cabin with props and puppets. Do you see where I'm going with this? Pretty good stuff. My dad... My old, my old dad actually got to go there? James. Ted Mitchum, your captor. He was the one making the show. James? Yes! My dad, or my old dad, he knew Brigsby? I think you're missing the point here, okay? He was the one who's deci- deciding what Brigsby would do next? That's right. Did, have, did, they, did they figure out who, who, who's gonna take over doing it? No one's taking over doing it. You're the only person who's ever seen this show. All right. And so that's kind of how the plot starts to unfold at that point. Now, oddly enough, I know so much about what this panel thought about George Carlin and nothing about what they thought about Rigsby Bear and Carolyn. That brings up sort of an awkward thing, which is there's a way in which Kyle Mooney's character is this huge fan uh, of a show that nobody else has seen uh, and nobody else could necessarily be expected to relate to, which is Essentially, my relationship to the movie Brigsby Bear, which I've now seen twice and until now have never talked to anybody who's seen it. I still don't know what you guys think about it. So you go first. Wow, Colin, that's 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 really bold. Like you chose this like obscure movie that you have this like affinity for and then are like, let's talk about it live. I love it. What do you think? Um so, cause I, that's like one of my fears is like, I have those things that I like secretly love and I hate like bringing them up. Cause I'm just afraid everyone's going to trash them. But you know what, Colin, you will be happy to know that this does not fall into the movies <laughs> that I had to watch for the nose that I totally hated. Uh, it was weird, but in like kind of a wonderful way. Um, 
So I get it. I get your love for this movie. Um, it, it it's it's definitely uh, it definitely reminded me of like Blast from the Past and you know Napoleon Dynamite and uh, Hamlet Two, which I don't know if any of you have seen. That's my weird reference movie. Um, but it, it's you know it, it's a fun watch. It's uh, kind of it's chill. It has this amazing cast. It's really funny to see like Mark Hamill in a role like this. Uh, I, Greg Kinnear is always, I mean, it's just like everyone is a really uh, sparkly performer in this and, and doesn't play it in this like over, over the top way. The whole movie is kind of understated, uh, but it works. And so I, I get why this a movie like this would stick with you. It wouldn't be something that I would, you know, bring up and start talking about. <laughs> Power to <laughs> well, well, yeah, no, this is the, of course, that's very much the pr- part of the premise of the movie is that Kyle Mooney does bring this thing up and talks to people as though he kind of expects them to be, love it or be okay with it. He eventually does find at least one person, a very nice young man named Spencer, who kind of shares some of his enthusiasm. But, you know, Bill, in a way, this is kind of a yin-yang conversation. There's a way in which yeah. the, the sweetness that pervades this movie, it starts with this incredibly grim premise, but then is pervaded by a sweetness, not just from Kyle Mooney's character. Character, but the way people around him, Kinnear as this cop who yeah. also has like these theatrical ambitions that were thwarted and stuff. I, I don't know. There, there's something. Maybe I just need a movie that's this nice. Yeah, you nail it. Like I was just sitting here thinking that these are mirror images of each other. But you probably put it better when you say yin yang because this this really had this does counter all of the George Carlin bitter with, as you say, really, really sweet. But I think it, it, it avoids being cloying. Uh, Like, I think it's very charming. It's a very charming film, but for me, that's often not really that much of a compliment. Uh, I do veer more toward the bitter, but I think it, 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 it skirts around that. It doesn't fall into that trap of being cloying and it's you know it's just um it's it's both sad and funny it's weird sometimes it's really cringy it's poignant you know he's just so he's so much of an outsider and i think that is very much about what it's really about being an outsider the loss of innocence there's this scene at a party which is just so hard to watch but for me, at least, it was hard to watch because true confession, I kind of have been that guy, James, played by Kyle Mooney at that party, just not knowing how I'm going to like get into the flow of things and making mistakes as I try to do that. And so it's I think it does speak to something that a lot of us have felt. And, you know, I think the similarity is that, you know, Carlin and, and Mooney were both kind of, uh, I, I assume Mooney, outsiders in some ways, but that that status of being an outsider can go in these very different directions. Yeah. And Sean, I mean, there's sort of some universality there, too. I mean, I think we've all, well, maybe not you, you're sort of 
You're cooler than most of us. Uh, but we've all been sort of the guy at the party who's interested in something that a lot of other people at the party aren't interested in. And we don't necessarily know where all the signposts are or the guardrails or, or you know, how to maybe navigate a social situation. Uh, I, I think this movie gets some of that stuff right in a very interesting way. But I also just want to know wh- whether you liked it, whether you thought it was good. Oh, I, I loved it. Uh, I, I've been meaning to watch this movie for years and I just kept putting it off and then it wasn't on streaming for a while. And it finally was on streaming uh, well, somewhere for free. I, I think it was on uh, Amazon and I didn't feel like paying three ninety nine or whatever. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I, one of these, the reason I like it is because it's, it really gets what makes Kyle Mooney very funny. And like what makes him like an interesting performer is like sort of the, he's like a child. You know what I mean? Like even he used to do these things before SNL is uh, these, these YouTube videos, the inside SoCal quick hits. And he was just—he was playing this like sort of San Diego surfer dude who was just sort of a childlike idiot. Like he would do interviews with people around, and they were so funny because it was like you can't hate this guy because he's like—is—is is he okay? I mean, is—is is this an adult or is this a child? You know, and that's sort of like the Brigsby Bear, like like at the center of it is, is that things like he's still a child, and and in, in this case he's a child because he's been forced to be a child <laughs> because uh, he's only ever watched a child show. Um, but it's, it's like that, uh, that quote where it's like, if you judge a goldfish on how to ride a bike, I don't know how, what the eyesight <laughs> quote is, but it's like, you know, everybody has their skills in like SNL, uh, just to get on that conversation, uh, sort of like forces people to be a certain thing. And so many people are successful on SNL or, or once they leave SNL and they do their own thing, like Tim Robinson would, I think we should leave. It's like, he would never, when he flourished on SNL, but when he was writing his own stuff, he was able to do it and be more successful than he would have ever been on SNL. So I think it's fascinating. Like, that's my favorite thing about the movie is that, like, oh, like, it, it reminded me, because I, I liked kind of Moni before SNL. I was like, like, why didn't they just do more stuff like this? But there's no room for it on SNL. Yeah, no, I, I'm so glad you went there because I've been thinking about that a lot. You know, SNL sort of, you know, it started way back when I was in college, which is like a really long time ago, you know, and it kind of positioned itself as a place where kind of non-mainstream comedy, not ready for primetime players, was going to happen and it was going to be experimental. And in some ways, if you look at the early stuff, it kind of was very risk-taking. But Sean, I do feel like over the years, they've kind of developed a set of invisible guardrails, you know, and, and it's, it, it still leaves a wide expanse in which to create comedy, but there's also quite a lot that falls outside it. And, and I do, I feel the same way. I sort of wonder if Kate McKinnon's going to have a terrific career. She will, if she can develop her own stuff the way Tina Fey and Amy Poehler uh, and Kristen Wiig do. Uh, but there's a way in which a guy like Mooney who really wanted to try something different almost didn't belong on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a sort of thing um, where like he knows his strengths, right? But like SNL doesn't necessarily need his strengths every night. They need what's going to make a good show. Uh, and like it, you know, like you said, it used to be they're not ready for primetime players, but then it became an institution. SNL is the premier sketch comedy show in maybe in the world. I mean, I, this is an American sort of centric mindset. <laughs> this is probably just something in France that's way bigger, but I don't watch that show because I don't even know if it exists. But uh, um, I think like Kate McKinnon is is just is a, such a, such a has great live wire energy. She's had some great sketches on um, uh, on SNL. But like I remember in the Ghostbusters movie that came out in 2016, which I didn't wasn't much of a fan of, but I thought everyone in it was, was great, gave great performances. Kate McKinnon most especially, 
But it's like when you only get that many opportunities to do that, and she's just weird. She's just a very weird performer. And it's like sometimes there's usefulness in that. Most most often on like something like Weekend Update, when you could just your whole character can, can just be weird person with weird voice mm-hmm. and bouncing off of Colin Jost, who's like you know a stick in the mud, so it's perfect. But I, I don't know. I, I would love to see like more opportunities for the the like weirders performers to get opportunities to do something actually cool and funny and good like Brisbane Bear. All right, we have to stop there. Uh, Brigsby Bear is the movie. You can find it. Search for it uh, on your uh, cable system. Uh, I think I forget. Did we watch it on Hulu? I can't remember what we watched it on. But it's available, I think, also with ads on some things. And You'll find it. Brigsby Bear, if you want it, we'll be back after this. He's daring and caring and knows so much more. It's Brigsby Bear. He travels the skies and the stars through the night. Battles on Snatcher with all of his might. He's strong, never wrong, cause he always does right. It's Brigsby Bear. Okay, quick like a bunny, I gotta thank Cat Pastor. She's our technical producer, the person who keeps us on the air and sounding good. Jonathan McPants is always the producer of the nose, and he is the producer of this nose. It's time to make some recommendations uh, with our wonderful panel. Carolyn Payne, why don't you get us started? All right. Well, I mentioned this earlier because something about Brigsby Bear, maybe it was the haunting Brigsby Bear theme that will probably, that will stick with me. So thanks for that and playing it again. (laughs) Um, But this movie reminded me, something about it reminded me of Hamlet 2, which came out a long time ago now. And it's uh, Steve Coogan, Catherine Keener, Amy Poehler, David Arquette, Elizabeth Shue. And it's about this uh, high school drama teacher who was a failed actor himself, who uh, takes on writing a sequel to Hamlet and having his ragtag ensemble of high school actors perform this epic Hamlet sequel. And it is, uh, this is actually one of my favorite movies that I very rarely talk about. So Colin, this is my Brigsby Bear. And um, it's really well done. Maybe the theater nerd inside me loves it more than others would. But uh, I, I feel like if you like Brigsby Bear humor, you would enjoy Hamlet too. So check that out. I've actually seen it and I agree. And Coogan is great in it. Um, all right. So Bill Usman, why don't you go next? I know the theme today is comedy. I'm not going to do that. Sorry, I'm a bad boy. Um, I'm going to recommend something really, really dark, but I think quite impressive. I'm currently watching uh, a TV series called Under the Banner of Heaven, which is a true crime drama um, based on a nonfiction book by John Krakauer about a murder that took place in a Mormon community. It stars Andrew Garfield, who I think is really terrific in it as a person who is suffering with a crisis in faith because of this investigation. And it really gets into, I think, some important issues about fundamentalist religion and the problems that can occur Uh, from that sort of thing. And not incidentally, uh, because it's such an important part of it, it's got great music by Jeff Ament, who is the guitarist from Pearl Jam. And this is his first uh, experience uh, actually creating the score for a television series. And I I just think the whole thing is really, really terrific from start to bottom. That's uh, under the banner of heaven. So I... um... 
I started it and then I stopped. Um, and then I started referring to it as Mormon Spider-Man, which I know is not a good thing to call it. But not uh, but, fair. Yeah, but you've made you've made me want to start it up again. So thanks, thanks Go for doing that. Go back to it. Yeah. Sean, Sean Murray, what are you going to recommend to us? Oh, we might have lost John. Um, oh, so, so, there sorry, you, sorry, there sorry, you are, sorry. There you are. Okay. Uh, I'm going to recommend a something that no one is going to actually check out. It's a two and a half hour video on YouTube called Line, Line The Line Goes Up uh, by this guy called Folding Ideas. And it's basically about uh, why our NFTs are uh, BS and just a plot to uh, keep power with the wealthy. And it's one of the most fascinating things I've seen in years. And like I said, it's two and a half hours. No one's going to watch it. But if you do, you'll thank me. <laughs> What see see the name of it again, Sean? It's called Line Goes Up. Line goes holding up. ideas. All right. So I'm going to um, endorse um, not a comedy thing either, although uh, somewhat lighter in, in style anyway than Under the Banner of Heaven. And that is the 10-episode new version, kind of total remake of uh, the, the Lincoln Lawyer. Uh, it's on Netflix right now. This is not some kind of great feat of prestige TV, but it's pretty good. Uh, the guy who's playing the lead role, sort of the role that was formerly done by Matthew McConaughey, but a, really a completely different imagining of this whole character, is a guy named Manuel Garcia Rufo, who you might have seen in Goliath and a whole bunch of other stuff, but uh, he, like really could wind up becoming a star as a result of this. has a great cast, including uh, Becky Newton, who's in been a, been a couple of things. I don't really know her, although so it turns out she's from Guilford, Connecticut. Uh, so I kind of would. And then is I don't know whether there's never Neve Campbell. I've never known. But I've also wanted to see her in something that wasn't a horror movie. She's terrific in this. And, and on and on. Oh, uh, an actor named Jazz Rayco. She's just terrific as the driver of The Lincoln Lawyer. So I really recommend this. It's, you know, if you want something that maybe isn't quite as challenging, uh, that's just sort of a really interesting legal thriller whodunit, not quite as challenging as Under the Banner of Heaven, probably not quite as prestigious either. Uh, I would totally recommend that. We are going to end the show today uh, with um, uh, sort of something other than our usual theme. Uh, this will be a song by Depeche Mode. This is because, as you probably know, uh, the uh, the keyboardist Andy Fletch Fletcher died yesterday. He was 60. 